This is the Audio Podcast. It's episode 141, Audio Snake Issues, recorded on February the 16th, 2015. Hello! <laughs> hello, hello. That was Scott here. I'm Samuel Freeman, and we're joined by Adam Yanch. Yes, yes. All three of us are here for the Audio Podcast. And of course, you can head to the Audio Podcast Show website to follow the notes, get all the links, all of this kind of stuff, and look back through the old shows and all of this kind of stuff, head to theaudiopodcast.co.uk forward slash show forward slash 141 for today's show. Ha-bam! Ha-bam, let's go. Let's go. That's the starter pistol. That is. We do. We have news and um, stuff and plunder. What's, what's the thing? Feature. We have feature. I liked it when it was called other. Okay. News, and we start off with a Halion. Is it a Halion upgrade or update? No, it, it, it's it's not an upgrade or an update really. But um, Halion Five, it came across my desk this morning that it's um, now available as a download as well as a box version, which means did, did it come literally across your desk? It just no. kind of across your desk. Somewhere. No, no. But whereas Halion's always been quite expensive, and a lot of that's had to do with the kind of chunky manual that you get inside the box and all that sort of thing, whereas now they're actually going to offer it as a soft, as a as a download only, and I think that's, you know, yep, there you go. It was, it felt newsworthy at the time as it passed. <laughs> so. Do you guys, do you remember when we were at uni and we used to print out, get the uh, the Max manuals printed out and bound, so we had our own yeah. copy of the Max manual, uh, when I say Max, I mean Max MSP. I never printed my own, but they, I remember borrowing them from the library. Thick, yeah, the the yeah. tutorials PDF as it was. It, it was very well, satisfying having that there while you're doing your programming, and then they made a proper inbuilt help system, and you didn't need it anymore. So there you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> anyway, so it's it's available to download as well as in Xbox form now. Okay, guys, look at the video feed. What am I doing? Waving. Waves, he's waves. Um, oh, no. I added this story. This is um, waves. The makers of plugins have some kind of sale on. They've offer. They're um, it's it's almost like they're trying to clear the shelves, the old stock before getting new stuff. But it's all virtual. There's no boxes involved. So, um, I think perhaps it's to draw attention to the change. Okay, better say what's going on. It's worked. Native, yeah, as for me, um, I I chose this over the propeller head story, which is. But um, I know. Um, was that the propeller head uh, discounts that are running until February? That's, no, yeah, yeah, that's the propeller head buy reason now and get a bunch of ACK extensions for free. Um, but Waves, I sell, if you buy now their native plugins, they're all on really cheap deals. So it's not, yeah, they're all reduced significantly. That includes the packages and the individual prices. Um, and then on the f- so that's for the rest of the month. And on the first of March, you'll get the automatic upgrade to the SoundGrid version. So buy the native now, get the SoundGrid version then. Cool. Yeah. Except it, well, I was I didn't really know what the diff- what I it confused me. That's why I had to go and look into it. That's why I in SoundGrid is actually a way of them. It, I've, have you come across this wave SoundGrid systems? No, no, what's SoundGrid? It's it's perhaps topical for today's show because it's networked um, audio processing so you can have server running and have your plugins running on a server and then using Ethernet connections 
fire an audio back into, and it's targeted for live work as well as post-production and studio stuff. So, so this kind of stuff is kind of like the old Logic Node, apart from it's not specific to um, one DAW. Yeah, I think so. Is it kind of like that? Yeah. Ah, shall we go? Shall we go? Ah, DigiGrid interfaces and things like that are listed on the Waves website. So I found that interesting. So congratulations, World Waves, for bringing that to my attention. I and to the attention of the audio podcast listeners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the last little bit of news is... Beep! Um, beep! Um, yep. Beep Street's Sunriser synthesizer is coming to the Mac, which is great because I have uh, Beep Street um, Sunriser on uh, iPad, and I've always thought it to be a decent synthesizer, uh, especially the arpeggiator. The arpeggiator is very it's complex, but once you get your head around how it works, it's incredibly flexible. Um, but yeah, so they're making a version for the Mac. Hooray! Cool. Is it actually released, or is this like a forthcoming thing? This might be a forthcoming thing. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder why it's just Mac, where you could probably just take the bulk of the code and whack it in a, a VST as well mm-hmm. for, um, for PC. So um, it's coming. It's okay. It's coming to the Mac as an AU plugin. And there's a preview video. If you head to our notes, you can get through to the article that talks about it and look at a video of it working. Yeah. Sounds good. I do like arpeggiators that are flexible. I'll be like that. Is that it then? We've, we're doing that. This is our new, our new format mini news section. Where I like it. Well, basically the idea is that each one of us picks our favourite news story of the week or whatever and we go with that and it shortcuts us quickly to the feature section, and now it is the feature section, and I think it's Scott's feature section. Yeah. So what I what I thought I would do in a very self-indulgent way is have this as part one of a series, um, a series of features which will be erratically placed over the coming weeks. Um, there you go. That's uh, I think that's a quality promise to our listeners: an erratic prom- promise of erraticism. <laughs> Um, that would be the case. But um, I've been involved recently in a couple of projects in various different places about specifying um, audio in, um, kind of audio setups into new builds and refurbishments of buildings. And um, I thought that might be the kind of work that might interest people a little bit and kind of things they've been doing, or at least to talk a little bit about the kind of process I'm doing. Because I think there's... Um, I'm quite often... The way this world works is... The way this kind of stuff works is that quite often there's multiple people kind of tendering out against people or coding in for different things and there's a lot of um, there can be a lot of weirdness happen in that process and hence I've developed a couple of kind of strategies about dealing with that so I thought that would be a cool topic for our for our, for our listeners perhaps listening and you guys feel free to interject at any point you wish uh, if you want to you want to clarify or you want to contribute that would be fine otherwise I'll, I'll kind of go and see so stuff like that but I thought the, the very first part to start of this project this kind of thing is to stress that the the key part of it is always that it's actually all about the clients and it, you've really got to make sure that you understand exactly what the client's doing and what, what the client's actually about. And the first place to start, a lot of people talk about managing expectations, but I think that's a complete 
that's a real mistake in this kind of line of work. You don't really want to worry about the client's expectations in the first instance. The thing you really need to identify is what the client's expertise actually is in relationship to in relationship to any sort of audio understanding. So as as a as, as an observation, you, you quite often get into a discussion and people start talking about very subjective quality questions very quickly, and there's always a notion of, oh, it should be louder, it should be quieter, or we can't hear it, or we want it to be really good, or we don't really care. And for any of those kind of statements to really mean anything, you really have to have a grasp on what the kind of expertise of the people you're dealing with is, or what the expertise of whoever they've dealt with previously, or has consulted into this project so far actually is as well. So quite often you find that um, a lot of people, I, a lot of kind of quotes I see in consultations, consults I do for people, what you realize, what you realize quite quickly is that they've dealt with somebody else who has just delivered them a very turnkey sort of solution into, it's like, you know, it's they've just viewed it as another box. They viewed them as another group of people and are basically supplying the same thing that they would, you know, they've met some sort of mid-range criteria as far as they're concerned. So they'll say something like, oh, you want room for 500 people, so here's a 500-person system and that's it. It has nothing to do with their space or their needs. It just is entirely a, at some point in the past, somebody else has told them what a 500-person system is and now they just deliver out this kind of system. And you inevitably end up with something which is overly specced or terribly underspecked or just completely unsuitable in every possible way. So... The, the first the first part I often think to recommend to people is it's really important to establish the expertise of who you're dealing with because that way when you come to talk about their expectations of the project you can actually qualify them for them as they say them out loud so if you know you're dealing with somebody who has no idea about any live sound provision whatsoever then when they say things like we want it to sound good you need a kind of reference back to situations they could they could relate to so I quite often use the cinema as an illustration. It's if people don't, you know, don't have any idea at all. I quite often say, well, do you want it to sound like you're at the cinema, or do you want it to sound like you're in a bar? And you know, do you want it to sound like you're in a conference hall? And normally, those kind of descriptors will mean things. And you know, if somebody says they want it to sound like a cinema, then that means they probably want something that does sound reasonably good. Whereas if a conference hall is okay, then that's you know, they just want to be able to understand it. They don't care what the you know the quality isn't the concern. So it's a trick to try and establish how to find that expertise, how to identify the expertise, if there is any, and what level that expertise actually actually is. You know? And a couple of times I found that having asked that question of the person, they've gone back and the person who's been I've been dealing with has gone back to whatever organization they're part of and actually asked that question out loud, just saying, do we actually know anybody? Is there anybody who has any idea about this stuff? And they've discovered that, you know, the person who is doing a completely unrelated job to them actually happens to, you know, happens to do amateur theatre and has been mixing live sound for amateur theatre for years. And it's like, well, quite clearly that's the person they should have asked about this in the very first instance. It's, but they, they've never asked that question out loud, so they've never, you know what I mean? It's, so it can be interesting to do that. Does, I don't know if that, if that made sense to you guys or if you would agree or if you would disagree or what you would, what you would suggest. Uh, sounds like it's making sense so far. <clears throat> yeah. But then, aren't, so, you, aren't you technically managing expectations within that? Isn't that well, basically managing expectations? It's not. It, it's all about managing expectations. The minute you work out what their expertise is, but until you know what their expectation, until you know what the expertise is, it's really difficult to 
control the expectations correctly because a lot of people have um, I, I was going to go and talk on about this again in a minute but in, in terms of expectations but a lot of people will talk very subjectively about what they want to achieve with no real idea about how it would be achieved at all and therefore have no idea about the risks or the liability of whatever kind of system they're going to take so um, as an illustration if you have somebody say we want it to sound really really good that's really important to us and then you discover, and then when you get to the expectations and ask them what they want to achieve, and they'll say things like, oh, we want it to sound really, really good, and that's the most important thing. We don't care how much money it costs, and that's okay. Oh, that's great. Okay, that's a really easy. We can make that work. But then after having talked about the expertise side of things with them briefly, you discover that they have nobody in-house who has a clue about anything, and they have no intentions of hiring anybody to meet that kind of requirement because that's not. But they haven't budgeted somebody being there then that's when you you suddenly realize having that expertise having a knowledge about their expertise that actually they'd be much better having a lower quality system and having somebody there to work it for them than they will be having a very good quality system but nobody running it for them because it's not going to sound they're never going to get the best out of the system you see what so, i would do there is i'd immediately get on my phone and i'd be like oh Je jerry okay we're going to need the full albert hall here the full <laughs> albert hall <laughs> No, probably not. So I probably wouldn't do that. Do that. Yeah. So w once you've got an idea what their expertise is and how it's going to inform, you know, whether they're going to be answering intelligently or whether they're just going to be making those kind of subjective, flippant remarks in response to questions, you can then ask questions to start expanding the expectations. So I was only just going to briefly think about this, and then the next time we'll start to consider how to deal with their expectations. But the kind of things you're going to want to try and find out is, like, what is the quality of output they're actually looking for? And quite often, if you've got somebody with expertise, they're going to be able to, you know, you can get specification, which is going to be frequency range related and going to be power level related, and it's going to, you know, they're going to know what that is. They're going to know what the kind of dampening coefficients of the walls are and therefore know how loud the system can be to meet their kind of their obligations to the local environment from a sound pollution point of view. Or they might not have a clue. So you can get that kind of quality of output. You can get that budget number, which is important to work out what sort of resources they're wanting to put towards this. Also, in terms of their expectations, do they expect this to be a staffed system or do they expect this to be a, you know, install and forget based system as well? Because that really impacts what the kind of opportunities you actually can offer through any sort of installation to them are going to be. Um, the idea of install security is important to a lot of people, you know, whether they want the system to be permanently in place and secure and unlikely to get stolen or whether they don't consider themselves at risk of theft and hence they'd rather have something very flexible and very mobile or you know very redeployable if they want to. And then the final really big one from a client point of view is often to work out what the lifespan of what they're wanting to work with actually is. And quite often that's one of the most important management ones to actually consider just in terms of managing that expectation of what the lifespan is because a lot of people are used to analog install systems where they spent you know 10 to, 50, 10 to 15 to 20 grand 25 years ago and it's worked perfectly fine to, you know, and it, and it works. Like it, even in many situations actually still works. So stuff like that. And the idea that, unfortunately, you know, you can go that analog hardware route and we'll talk, you know, in a couple of weeks maybe I'll talk about why you might go analog, why you might go digital. But one of the big issues is really that if you go analog in a permanently installed system, then you can look at a lifespan of 20 plus years quite easily. Whereas a digital-based system is unlikely to offer you a 20-year lifespan. So it's important to try and work out what those expectations are. But, you know, again, that's where the expertise is really important because anybody, 
anybody who with sort of a technical expertise is going to understand that a di digital based systems are inherently far more temporary, you know, temporary, and generally disappear from kind of you know obsolescence issues very quickly, whereas the analog systems don't. Depends. So that's that kind of thing where having somebody internally with the expertise who's consulting inside will be able to have that conversation and be able to establish what it is they're wanting to develop or they're wanting to build as part of that. I think you can still buy Yamaha 01 V96s, and they've been around a long time. It's not. It's well, yes, that's true. But that's that's a you know that's a digital desk running in place of a piece of piece of analog hardware. Whereas if you go onto an entirely digital based solution, it's you know I mean we've had a, like a software based solution. You mean? Well, it's not even a software based solution. But if you, I, I didn't want to talk too much like in these particulars, but we're exploring them more. But as an illustration, as you've raised that point, it's things to say like if you'd installed a analog multi core into a building. Then those will those will still run to this day perfectly fine, and you regularly come across kind of you know twenty to thirty year old multi core runs that have been installed for decades, and they're perfectly fine. Whereas we've obviously moved Ethernet audio standards two or three times a year for about a decade, and gone you know through various versions of cat you know cat three, cat four, cat five. Now we're on cat six, which would have required all those changes to have been made. You know, lots of changes to be made as well. So it's just those kind of moments where you've you know, a lot of people think, oh, the digital system is, there's lots of positives to the digital system, but, but one of them isn't, you can install it and it'll still work in 25 years' time. It's a, it's a different kind of solution quite often in that situation. There you go. So that was, that, I thought that would be a little bit of an opening discussion, and if people have got any thoughts, then they could uh, tweet us, uh, you know, tweet us at the audio podcast if they want to, or if they want to send us an email, they could do, they could do that kind of thing as well. And we're more than happy to get people's ideas or suggestions as to whether they agree with that or whether they would take a different approach as well. I think one final caveat, which is worth mentioning probably, is that I come from a, I come from a, I come from a orientation in this, which is all about delivering, um, delivering a good service to people and to re build repeat client operation in that way. And there is another version of this, which is all about doing it as quickly and dirty, dirty and cheaply as possible, which is another business strategy that you another business approach you could take to this entirely. So that's, you know, that's a kind of really key key issue probably for people to reflect on as well. Cool. Did you have any, did you have any questions, Sam, or were you, what did you think? Did you no, think? I mean, I, it seems like you're wrapping up like quite nicely. You've said this is, that's, that was your part one, focusing yes. on the client. What What is part two going to be focused on? Um, I think part two will be the, will, will be the digital analog question. We will, we will consider part two as the digital analog question. And keep our focus on this idea of installed, this installed kind of live sound situation that we've been chatting, we've been chatting for. Very good. Cool. Awesome stuff. Cool. There you go. That does our, our part one of that feature there. Uh, what's next? What's next? Well, what's next is plunder. <sighs> Things on the internet which are not particularly new, but. We're going to talk about them anyway because they're good. So I've not brought Plunder this week, um, but you guys have. Somebody has brought Ardor 3 tips and tricks to the oh, table. Guess who's brought that? To the internet table. Um, <laughs> that was me. Hello. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, tips and tricks for using the open source store Ardor 3. Um, for our more experienced listeners, I suspect you would be like, yeah, obvious. But, you know. For anybody who's perhaps newer, new, newer as a listener to us, or newer to a music technology audio technology, it has a really good kind of these are you know some good solid kind of basic starter tips, which I think were worth you know, 
And I mean, what kind of tips have we got there, Scott? Well, it's it's the classic kind of you know, it's those idea, it's it's those. How can I put this? It has a lot. Some of the ideas are very much informed by a hardware studio practice, which will make them seem incredibly obvious to our, I suspect, to ourselves. But I suspect. I sometimes think aren't so obvious to other people. So they talk a little bit about how if you're running out of processing power, you could consider AUX hosting global effects rather than inline hosting effects, which okay. would be a strategy that I'm sure you guys would would think as very obvious. At the mm-hmm. same point, I know from my teaching work that I deal with loads of students who would, you know, you know, they they've got 27 identical reverbs running on 27 tracks. That's like that's what you do. You, you know. Yep. Well, I'll put you some know, reverb on here. I'll it. put some reverb on there. This one needs some reverb too. Never mind. Yeah. yeah. But I guess we all started in studios with where your reverb. You might have had a choice of two or three reverbs if you're lucky, and that was patched in on your auxiliary sends. And that was. Or yeah. we started with much more lowly computers, which couldn't use any reverb plugins at once. Yeah, That's those were the days. Those were the days. Send effects. So send effects. Okay, so it's that kind of level of uh, of tips and tricks. There's no, there's nothing like really interesting about how Ardor works. Something that's like, oh well, you could do this, and this is something that you couldn't do with another DAW. There, there are a couple of peculiar, well, not peculiarities. There are a couple of user interface tips. So it talks about how you can hot button stuff inside Ardor, and it talks about the naming and grouping and um, kind of labeling, kind of options inside our door as well but it's that kind of classic article where it talks about a couple of very you know appropriate general tips and then does applied examples in our door so there you go it's, it's always the way that I've been like like sound on sound magazine they have at the end near the end like um, reason tips and logic tips and tips for all the different DAWs and then you you have to look at them and decide. Well, I don't use that DAW, but is it going to tell me something that I could implement in my DAW, or is it something very specific? And there's no point in me actually reading about it because I couldn't do that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that went nowhere, but uh, it's good. It's a good observation. <laughs> Talking about other DAWs that people use, Adam, I understand that you've been exploring uh, Ableton Live recently, and you have some plunder related to that. I have been exploring Ableton Live. Um, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, I get Ableton Live. It's it's an interesting idea. I haven't really gone all the way through the workflow of it yet, but what I did do, because I was basically, I'm working on a little portable system, I thought, okay, let's try one of these, um, one of these grid-based controllers so I got myself a Launchpad Mini um, on Gumtree and um, plugged it into Ableton and did it and then I was like you know what this is this isn't great you know I wasn't really very impressed by the default setup of how all the buttons work and all the because you've got different modes and everything so I had a little bit of a look and uh, yes there is actually a controller script that you can install into live uh, that allows the launch pad to work like the push does. So, um, it, of course, it doesn't have everything. You can't, you know, it doesn't have velocity. Sen- it doesn't make it velocity sensitive and these kinds of things. But it basically mimics the way that the pads on the push work. So it's called launch pad 
Um, and it is available, well, you can get to it through the audio podcast notes. Um, there's a link at the bottom of the page in the plunder section. Very good. Is what? Where's the 95 coming from there? It reminds me of Windows 95. Is that? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, but I think it's because it's Ableton Live 9. I don't know what the 5 means, because it was called uh, Launchpad 85, and that was for um, Live 8. So, the link there. But also, if you go to the website where you download it, it also gives you a kind of uh, overview of how the uh, the buttons map and how you can get through to um, like different scales, set up the scales and show things differently on the uh, on the pads. So yeah, I mean, check it out if you're a a, a live user with a launchpad, and this works with a launchpad, launchpad mini. Probably the S. Not sure if it works with a Pro. Yeah, it seems like you're being very harsh on the the original um, Novation. I'm, I'm just going off on a slight tangent here because I remember those Novation launch pads when they first turned up were competing against the multiple hundred pound monomes of the at, at the time, weren't they? And it was because these are like ninety nine. I don't know if I remember correctly. They're not. The, oh no, maybe not that early. No, I think they are. Uh, no, I think they're probably because Ableton didn't exist in ninety nine. Did it? No, no. So maybe I'm a little, maybe 2000. 2005, I think. 2005, even then. Like yeah. Um, demo, yes. But <laughs> um, you're paying for that cheapness. Um, and oh yes. I, I, I will admit that I haven't. Like it's it's a it feels like a solid thing. The Launchpad Mini. It's a cool little thing. Uh, it's USB bus powered, so that's good. Um, yeah. But um, 2009, there you go. Sorry, I knew it was a nine at the end. I just was a decade out. 2009 was the first one. Is that the launch pad or the launch? That's pad the launch pad. Okay. Um, and but the problem is that you know you use the pads and it's always MIDI one two seven velocity, and I haven't found an easy way of changing the default. There's no velocity sensitive pads. And also, I've had trouble with the triggering as well. Like, I've pressed the pad down. Sometimes it double triggers. Sometimes it doesn't trigger. Mm. So it's hard to be to get a consistent output. I found with it. Um, and of course, remember that I'm I'm kind of got used to the Machine Studio, which you know, way above in hardware text um, levels, just because it's more expensive. But the the Machine Studio's pads are so much better to use. Um, you get much better feeling out of them. Um, I wonder if the bigger launch pad has uh, a better feeling. Maybe it doesn't hitting the buttons doesn't re-trigger or untrigger or that so much. Um, so yeah, being a bit harsh, but it is you know a launch pad mini will cost you a hundred pounds, and I don't know how much monomes cost. I don't know if they still make them. Monomes used to be incredibly expensive, didn't they? Isn't the machine machine? I'm trying to think. Oh, it's Machine Studio is like set over 700, isn't it? So. Uh, yeah, I got it when right. it was on special. Okay. Um, but there's also the so, normal machine and there's the Machine Micro, the small version. Yeah. Uh, which I think they all have the same pads, the same number of pads and the same type of pads. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there you go. There's also a uh, there's also a controller script for the machine to work with live, but I haven't tried that yet. That'll be something for the future. For the future. 
excellent stuff. But there we go. I think that brings us to well, that brings us to the end of the plunder. There we go. And Yay. I guess at the same point, it brings us to the to the end of the this this episode of the audio podcast. Yes, I think it does. I think it cool. Does. So we'll, we'll be back next week with the audio podcast. And Adam, I so perhaps you have the feature for next week. I don't. Know yeah, you... I think it is. It is my turn. Um, I maybe haven't decided exactly what to go for yet, so uh, it'll be a surprise. surprise. Fair, fair enough. That, that's probably fine. Well, that, that for now, though, brings our show to end. So this was uh, episode 141 of the audio podcast. I've been uh, Scott here. I've had a great time as always. I'm Samuel Freeman. I might be more awake next week. And Adam Yanch is here and will be here next week as well. That's me. Bye. Bye. Bye.